let's get started. Welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Melanie Kamet. I'm a professor in the government department here at Harvard and I'm the acting director of the Weatherhead Center, which is the proud home of the project on Shiism and global affairs that is uh, putting on this event today. And we're really delighted to host the program and to have the opportunity to address this important issue. Uh, when the news broke in early January of the assassination of Soleimani, we thought, okay, we should definitely do something about this here uh, to sort of explore the implications for the relationship between U.S. and Iran, but of course there were no students on campus at that time, so, and, uh, and this is by no means uh, a boring topic. It still, uh, you know, several weeks later is equally, if not more, important. Um, so I'm very delighted to um, have this distinguished group of guests here today. I'm going to briefly introduce them. Uh, and then each of them will speak for about uh, 10 minutes or so, so we'll have plenty of time for Q&A. Uh, I should just mention that uh, my colleague, Professor Rosen, is unable to join us today. Um, so let me just say a few words about each of the panelists here today. Uh, first, starting with Dr. Mohsini, Dr. Paya Mohsini, who is the director of the project on Shiism and global affairs at the Weatherhead Center. He's also a lecturer in the Department of Government, and he teaches on Iranian and Middle Eastern politics and on Islam, and he's a, an award-winning instructor. Um, his research focuses on Iranian foreign and domestic uh, politics, Shia thought and identity, Islam and sectarian conflict in the Middle East, and a variety of other related topics. He's fluent in Persian and travels frequently to the region. He publishes a lot on uh, Iran and on related issues and is, uh, appears frequently on major media outlets to talk about these uh, questions. Uh, he holds a PhD in government from Georgetown and an MA uh, from King's College London. So uh, second we have Dr. Trita Parsi who's at the uh, Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft uh, and is an expert on U.S.-Iranian relations, Iranian foreign policy, and the geopolitics of the Middle East. He's an award-winning author. I'm not gonna go through the list of awards. Um, <laughs> you can look them up. He's published uh, three books, and most recently, in 2017, uh, released by Yale University Press, was Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Uh, in 2010, he received the Grawmeyer Award for <laughs> Ideas Improving World Order. Um, I think it's also interesting to note that he was born in Iran and moved with his family as a young child in Sweden to avoid uh, political repression in Iran. And um, interestingly, his father was repressed both by the Shah and by the Islamic Republic. So I think that gives you special credentials. Um, he holds a PhD uh, from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And last but not least, we have Michael Singh, who's the Lane Swig Senior Fellow and Managing Director at the Washington Institute. He's co-chair of the congressionally mandated Syria Study Group which uh, issued its final report several months ago in late 2019. Um, he's served on other congressional commissions as well. Um, he's got a very long record of public service. I'm sure he's seen a lot of interesting things. Um, former senior director for Middle East Affairs at the White House and the National Security Council. Uh, and during his tenure at the White House from 2005 to 2008, he was responsible for devising and coordinating US national security policy to the Middle East, broadly speaking, from Morocco to Iran, and focused on a variety of hot-button issues across the region. 
Uh, he served as special assistant to secretaries of state Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell, and he too writes extensively on the Middle East and appears on media outlets to talk about a wide range of issues on security and, and the Middle East. So uh, we're gonna start with Michael Singh and then Trita Parsi and then go to Payam and each panelist will have again about 10 minutes or so uh, and then we'll open it up for Q&A from the audience. All right, um, well first it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I, I spent about 18 months of my life uh, at Harvard and it's always a pleasure to come back. Um, I thought I would start just briefly touching on sort of how do we get to where we are now, what's happening, and, and, and where might we likely go from here. And I'll try to do all that in just a few minutes uh, before yielding the floor here to my fellow panelists. Um, so all of this, the story of where we are now with Iran, uh, which is obviously a, a place of great sort of danger and tension, um, starts uh, with, um, well, you could go back and say it starts with any number of things you know, in the ancient past, but it starts really with the JCPOA, the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal, as some call it, um, which was signed in 2015 and came into force in 2016. Um, those of you who remember the debate around that deal will remember that what had been a matter of bipartisan consensus, sort of the need to counter Iran, both its nuclear activities and its regional policy, suddenly became very polarized around the question of was the JCPOA, was the nuclear agreement a good deal for the United States? Um, and that really centered not just on the particulars of the agreement itself, although there were lots of debates about the particulars of the agreement. Did it sufficiently restrict Iran's nuclear activities? Um, should it have in tried to incorporate regional issues like Iran's support for Hezbollah? but also the underlying strategy behind it, which was this strategy of trying to disentangle ourselves from the Middle East and from conflicts in the Middle East. Um, I think weighing very heavily on President Obama's mind at the time uh, were the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, maybe also the wars in Libya and Syria, um, and the desire to avoid, uh, first and foremost, any further entanglement like that, but also to draw ourselves back. And I think he saw the JCPOA, not just as a way to constrain Iran's nuclear activities, but also a way for us to start maybe drawing down our own uh, commitment to the Middle East. Um, that also was not a matter of bipartisan consensus. Um, and there wasn't really a debate about that strategy, even if there was a debate about the deal. But Republican opposition to the deal was almost unanimous. And so it was probably the easiest thing to predict about American politics following President Trump's election was that this deal was going to be in trouble. Um, nevertheless, there was an effort to save the deal, as it were, um, by um, first trying to fix it uh, in the sort of parlance of, uh, of the critics of the deal, and I was a critic of the deal, um, to fix it not by renegotiating it with the Iranians, but to fix it by basically buttressing it with other agreements with other parties, uh, primarily our European allies, um, to address the sort of pieces that were left out, in a sense, of the deal, and to come to some agreement among ourselves about what we would do about the perceived gaps in the deal. Those negotiations actually made a lot of progress, um, but ultimately the United States walked away from those negotiations because President Trump, having promised to tear up this deal in the elections and uh, campaign in 2016, um, decided that he was going to follow through on that pro promise regardless of um, that diplomatic process that was going on at the time. When we ripped up the JCPOA, immediately that put pressure on us to come up with a new strategy, 
um, because uh, up until that point, the strategy was to kind of use the threat of our withdrawal from the JCPOA as leverage against those other parties uh, to get them to focus on other things like you know, Iran's uh, support for Hezbollah, its activities in Iraq, uh, its missile uh, proliferation, and so forth. So we needed a new strategy, and the new strategy that was adopted was actually one that was borrowed from the North Korea theater. It was this strategy of maximum pressure, uh, as the Trump administration calls it. The idea that we were going to utilize economic sanctions, an area where we have a tremendous advantage as the United States because of our really outsized power in international financial markets and international commerce, um, to basically force Iran to come back to the negotiating table and negotiate a new deal. Um, and President Trump, uh, in his description of this strategy, uh, indicated that he wanted a comprehensive deal. In other words, one that doesn't just address the nuclear issue, but addresses all the problems we have with Iran. And those problems were summarized in 12 points by Secretary of State Pompeo um, in a speech that he gave. And it basically boils down to nuclear missiles, Iran's regional activities, um, and then bilateral issues like uh, the American citizens who are being held prisoner by Iran. Um, and so basically what we saw from there, um, starting in um, 2018, uh, middle of 2018, was a ratcheting up of American sanctions. And that ratcheting up uh, really is going on even now today. And the, the strategy of maximum pressure is essentially a strategy of brinksmanship. And it's the same kind of strategy that we had with respect to North Korea in that the idea is um, we're not looking for an off-ramp. We're basically trying to increase the pressure to the point where Iran will one day capitulate in the sort of the way that the administration conceives of it. They'll call up the White House one day and say, okay, you know, we cry uncle uh, and let's talk. Um, now, Iran, of course, uh, you have to factor into this as well because anytime you have a strategy, of course, uh, as we say, the enemy gets a vote. Um, and Iran uh, has had a, an approach uh, of its own to pushing back on American strategy. Initially, when it seemed like the economic pressure was going to be more moderate, um, when there were still uh, waivers being issued that would allow Iran to export oil to other countries, for example, it seemed as though Iran's strategy focused on waiting out the Trump administration, basically um, sticking to the nuclear agreement, trying to isolate the United States diplomatically, and basically to hope that President Trump would be a one-term president and they could then go back to uh, the nuclear deal uh, as they had been before because Iran likes the nuclear deal. Iran sees the nuclear deal as being in its interests. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it can't also be in our interests, uh, but Iran certainly sees it as advantageous uh, for, for itself for a number of different reasons. Um, when we decided to take maximum pressure further and cancel those oil waivers, try to prevent uh, any states from purchasing oil from Iran. Um, and oil is really the lifeblood of Iran's economy. What you could see was that Iran decided it needed to shift strategy. It did change the rules of the game, as it were. And so Iran embarked upon this two-track effort to push back on the United States, to deter the United States from continuing with the maximum pressure strategy. And those two tracks were a track of regional escalation. So Iranian forces, we think, attacked tankers, pipelines, uh, a oil refining facility in Saudi Arabia that handles about 5% of the world's oil, um, and then ultimately also U.S. bases in Iraq, ultimately killing one American, which is what led us to the Soleimani strike. But we also saw Iran follow a track of nuclear escalation. In response to the United States withdrawing from the JCPOA, Iran has incrementally stepped away from complying with the nuclear deal itself, ratcheting up its nuclear activities, 
um, and therefore getting incrementally closer to the point where it could actually pursue a nuclear weapon, uh, although it hasn't made that choice. But I think when you look at all these actions together by Iran, the ultimate objective didn't change. The ultimate objective remained to get the United States to back off uh, and to preserve the nuclear deal rather than to, say, blow up the nuclear deal and make a nuclear weapon uh, or something like that. Uh, but the Trump administration has been pretty adamant that it's not going to back off. And um, I think that when Iran pursued this two-track strategy or, or implemented this two-track strategy, just as we have a comparative advantage in international financial markets, Iran believed that it had a comparative advantage when it came to, say, um, a willingness to take risks uh, on the ground in the Middle East. Because what they heard from President Trump was this desire, just like President Obama, to disengage from the region, to pull back from the region. You know, President Trump has said that our uh, involvement in the Middle East is the dumbest thing that we've done, including the Civil War or something like that, um, which is a pretty categorical statement, I think. And so it, it may well be that Iran figured, well, if we push on the United States militarily, they don't have the stomach to push back. The Soleimani strike, I think, dispelled that notion for Iran, the notion that um, ultimately President Trump was only willing to use sanctions and not willing to use military force. Um, so does that mean, therefore, that Iran is deterred and we're going to have nuclear negotiations? Well, not necessarily, because what, if you ask me, if, as I look at the situation, this Iranian missile salvo, and now I'm sort of to where we are now, um, that, this Iranian missile salvo that attacked the al-Assad base in Iraq, the American military base, maybe it wasn't intended to kill people, but I think Iran uh, fired these missiles fully understanding that it could kill Americans, perhaps quite a few Americans, and was therefore ready for a much more serious military escalation with the United States. Um, and perhaps this shouldn't be surprising because the idea of deterrence basically requires that the consequences be threatened. Um, right now, the consequences aren't threatened. Obviously, Iran is already experiencing devastating consequences from economic sanctions. And so it may be that Iran is in a position where they feel they don't have that much to lose uh, and therefore are willing to escalate. Therefore, I expect that what we'll see going forward is in fact more escalation from Iran, not, not less. I don't think we'll necessarily see Iran standing down because of the Soleimani strike. Um, and I think we'll see a couple of different types of fallout from the Soleimani strike. Number one, I think Iran is probably not done with its desire for revenge for the killing of Soleimani. Soleimani was, um, and we can go into this more and maybe others will have more to say about it, but he was a very important figure in Iran and he was very important to Iran's military establishment. And so I think there will be uh, not just a sort of necessarily calculated or strategic desire for revenge, but also just a visceral desire for revenge against the United States, for killing this person who is important in the pantheon of Iranian leadership. Second, I think there will be political consequences, and we're seeing that play out in Iraq to some degree. And how we respond to the Iraqis feeling as though their sovereignty was, uh, was trespassed on, um, how we respond to this kind of uh, now sense that they want American troops out, um, I think will be quite consequential for American policy in the Middle East. Um, I think it's important that we handle it um, with some humility um, and that we not be too sort of brash with the Iraqis, lest we increasingly become unwelcome guests in Iraq. Um, because ultimately, if we are forced to leave Iraq, that probably means we're also forced to leave Syria. And that probably means the end of the counter-ISIS fight, which at the end of the day is, uh, is of, uh, I think, very significant strategic importance for the United States. Then the other consequence I think we'll see is for how the U.S.-Iran sort of competition, conflict, proceeds from here. Um, the question I have is, will this now be the new normal? 
Um, both the United States and Iran, in a sense, took unprecedented actions. We directly targeted uh, a very high-ranking Iranian official. The Iranians directly from their own territory, for really the first time since arguably the late 1980s, um, and maybe even you could say that wasn't quite comparable, um, fired missiles from its own territory uh, to attack the United States directly. Typically, we'd expect Iran to attack the United States through proxies. Um, and this is sort of the game that we play. There's a great book about it called Twilight War, uh, which details how the United States and Iran have been in sort of a low-level conflict basically since 1979, but always below the level of direct conflict, with the exception of one episode, as I said, in the late 1980s, uh, Operation Praying Mantis, where the U.S. Navy sunk uh, most of Iran's uh, naval capacity. So we could now see a kind of increase in the level uh, of U.S.-Iran conflict, which puts us in a more dangerous place. So what happens from here? Will we actually get this uh, U.S.-Iran negotiation? It's possible we will, frankly. Um, it may be that the economic consequences for Iran um, become so severe, and they are already quite severe, that the Iranian leadership decides that they need to negotiate. Um, and to be clear, the U.S. and Iran have negotiated under every American president since Jimmy Carter in one way, shape, or form. So neither the U.S. or Iran have shied away from talking to one another, even if those, that sort of talking has often been tortured and, and under uh, very constrained circumstances. My guess, though, is that Iran probably feels right now as though it really lacks leverage for any such negotiations. And so we'll want to build leverage up. That, to me, means you should expect to see more escalation. Perhaps uh, an Iranian withdrawal from the nuclear agreement and a return of its nuclear program to sort of those pre-2015, pre-2013 levels um, to kind of create a sense of crisis. Anytime a state like Iran or North Korea um, enters into um, a diplomatic process, what we've seen from them is that rather than talking about Wanting, sort of wanting to come into the talks to talk about our agenda. They want to create a crisis so that the agenda for the talks is diffusing that crisis and returning to the status quo ante. That's, I think, what we should expect to see from Iran if they choose to negotiate. But I think we probably won't see that until our own presidential elections are over because ultimately, as I sort of began, this is still a very polarized issue. Uh, and my guess is that if you had a Democratic president uh, in office, you would see probably a return of the United States to the nuclear deal um, if that's something that is even a, an option at that stage in January 2021. And so that creates a tremendous incentive for Iran to really not make any concessions until it sees what the outcome is of the talks. I think the Trump administration is aware of that, and that, of course, creates an incentive for them to push the pressure even further, um, which, of course, even, even further raises those tensions. Um, maybe I'll stop there. Um, I tried to cover a lot of ground in just a few minutes, um, but uh, look forward to hearing what the other panelists have to say and also your questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure being here. Uh, always delighted to come to Harvard and always delighted by the very stimulating conversations here. Michael and I have been on plenty of panels before, uh, oftentimes sparring. Uh, JCPOA is something that we have uh, debated numerous times. The only times that I think I found myself a little bit disoriented and confused is when we have found ourselves in agreement. <laughs> so I, please forgive me if I'm incoherent. Please forgive me if I am also a bit repetitive. <clears throat> um, but it tells us something what has happened to the general political spectrum uh, in the United States and in Washington in general. Let me make a couple of points. First, I think it's really critical to understand why is it that in the last six months, the United States and Iran has twice been less than 10 minutes or so away from a full-scale war. 
And I think this comes down simply to the fact that the Trump administration walked out of the nuclear deal, unresolved a resolved issue. Whether one thinks that is a fantastic deal or if it was a flawed deal, nevertheless, it was a new status quo. It was a stable status quo. Trump decided to unresolve it and unleash the forces that we're seeing here today. And I think when it comes to, um, and, and as Michael pointed out, you cannot pursue any strategy and then expect that the other side doesn't have a vote. But you particularly cannot embark on a strategy that the President of the United States himself has called economic warfare and then expect that that economic warfare will never spill over into military warfare. The counter-escalation that the Iranians inevitably would do against the type of economic warfare that the Trump administration has pursued was predicted and was correctly predicted to lead the United States and Iran towards the brink of war. And that's where we have been for the last couple of months. That's where we continue to be. There is, I think, a false perception that the assassination of Soleimani, because it didn't lead to a bigger response from the Iranians, at least not yet, it means that the risk of war has now dissipated and we are now in a more stable position. I think that is quite illusionary because at the end of the day, the driving forces that was pushing the United States and Iran closer to the brink of war are still there and in many ways have intensified. The Trump administration is continuing to pursue maximum pressure and economic warfare. The Iranians are continuing to counter-escalate uh, in order to, as Michael said, either deter the U.S. from doing so, to spread the risk and spread the cost of that policy, and particularly make it more costly for the U.S. to do so. That was what led to the first scrimmage in the Persian Gulf earlier in July of last year. But now you have another arena as well, which is Iraq. You have the assassination of Soleimani. The Iranians have officially said that this was their response for now, whatever that yet may mean. It may indicate that they're not gonna do anything in the short term. But it was not just Soleimani that was assassinated. In that same car was also another individual, a member of the cabinet of the Iraqi government, uh, a major leader. Uh, of uh, one of the Iraqi uh, militias. And there were also about 25 of those that were killed in an earlier strike by the United States. We are not in a situation in which we can certainly say that there will not be a revenge of his death or those deaths against American troops in the region. And we're not in a position to say as to whether the Trump administration will interpret such a measure, even if it was conducted by Iraqi militias, that it will be perceived as not having had an Iranian fingerprint on it or an Iranian order behind it. So we don't just have the tensions in the Persian Gulf, now we also have a scenario in Iraq that can trigger a larger military confrontation even if that may not have been the intent of either side of this equation. The idea that this then, and I think Michael agreed with this, this is not restored deterrence. Some of the arguments in favor of Trump doing this in the White House was that since you didn't retaliate or escalate further uh, in the summer, you didn't do anything when there were attacks against Saudi oil fields in September, which likely the Iranians were behind, 
The Iranians now think that you are completely unwilling to do anything militarily, and as a result, the U.S. needs to reestablish its deterrence. Well, it is true. The United States did something that the Iranians did not expect that was far more deadly, far more direct than had been done before. But it's also true that the Iranian response went well beyond what the Iranians ever had done before, again, as Michael pointed out. This was an attack directly from Iranian territory, not by a proxy, against an American installation. The fact that no one died may much more be about luck than necessarily by design. Even though there is a narrative out there that the Iranians deliberately did this in such a way that uh, no one would get killed, that is not a view that is largely held in the U.S. military. The weapons the Iranians used for this was ballistic missiles. If you wanted to be absolutely certain that you would strike in such a way so that you would not have any American deaths, you would have used cruise missiles because the precision is far greater. Instead, they use ballistic missiles. Their precision that the Iranians have managed to develop are not bad, but not sufficiently so that you can with certainty say this would not have left any, killed, any American deaths. So I don't think we can conclusively say that there's a re reinforcement of deterrence or uh, reestablishment of deterrence. What in any way has seemed to have happened is that it has reconfirmed the reality that pursuing maximum pressure, pursuing economic warfare, only is leading the United States and Iran closer towards military confrontation, rather than thinking that this is now something that has um, been uh, eliminated as a result of the limited response that the Iranians have presented so far. So what happens going forward? I fear that within the next three to six months, we will face this again in some shape or form. Whether it's in the Persian Gulf, whether it's in the Iraqi arena, this has not gone away. How the response will be, particularly in an election year, particularly with a president that probably would um, welcome various kinds of diversions, is impossible to predict. The only thing we can say is that it's likely not going to be particularly pleasant. Can other actors do something about it? This is one of the big challenges we face in the global system today. If this had happened 25 years ago, the UN Secretary General would be on an airplane flying back and forth between Tehran and Washington and other states trying to do some uh, uh, diffusion of tensions and some um, uh, conflict de-escalation. No one has even mentioned his name in any of the TV shows I've been on, any TV shows I have watched. It's as if the UN is absolutely not a player any longer. So this means that the only elements that actually can step forward and provide any form of mediation, any form of effort to be able to de-escalate the situation, happens to then be political leaders in countries that for a variety of reasons may be well positioned as countries to do so, but also that specific political leader has the type of political maneuverability and political capital that he or she can afford to step in. So far, we have seen, of course, that the Omanis, um, uh, the Swiss, the Iraqis themselves, to a certain extent, have done so historically. We had one episode in which both the Brazilians and the Turks did so. And of course, uh, most lately, uh, the Prime Minister of Japan and the, uh, the French uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron as well. But that means that we're essentially dependent upon other types of circumstances and constellations of the stars being in the right way in order for someone to step up and do de-escalation, rather than having a sitting institution whose job and function is to do these kind of things. That just adds to the dangers that we're facing right now. Europe can do something, though. 
And what they have done so far, I would say, has been quite problematic. They have initiated the uh, uh, resolution mechanism in the JCPOA. If they do take it to the Security Council, the way that it is structured means that the sanctions will be snapping back automatically. And at that point, the JCPOA is uh, beyond dead. And the question is if the Iranians will not just completely quit the JCPOA, which of course they will, but whether they will go further, leave the NPT, uh, and then we will see massive escalation. What the Europeans should have done, and I think they still have the possibility of doing, is if you want to put more pressure on the Iranians on that front, you have to balance that by also giving something positive. The Europeans, at the end of the day, have not lived up to the nuclear deal because they're supposed to be um, engaged uh, economically with Iran. They've even passed laws in Europe saying that European companies that are abiding by American sanctions will be sanctioned by European governments. Not a single European co uh, company has been sanctioned. Instead, they've all left and they've all been much more adamant about following Trump's sanctions that they don't believe are legal rather than following the JCPOA. What they can do and should do and still um, should contemplate is to provide uh, the very minimum that was part of Macron's plan when he first started doing his mediation, which is to give the Iranians a line of credit. They would be able to essentially sell their oil, for instance, uh, for future sales. That would reduce some of the economic pressure, and that would change also the political winds inside the country. So there's pressure for them to do counter-escalation, the pressure for them to start walking away from the JCPOA, which, as Michael correctly pointed out, started to come after all of their oil were sanctioned by uh, Trump, meaning a full year after the U.S. left the deal. We can still go back to that period that existed in which the U.S. had left the deal, but the Iranians were not counter-escalating. The Europeans have failed to do so. I think they still have an opportunity to do so, and that's one of the very, very few potential bright lights that I see in the next six months. Thanks so much. So it's a pleasure to be able to speak on a panel with my two esteemed colleagues here. Um, I you know, start off with echoing the, the, the concern and gravity that this conflict really, or what we're seeing, the escalation, is really much, you know, just at the beginning. It's going to get much worse. So, you know, be prepared to watch in the coming months uh, to see where the future of U.S.-Iran confrontation is headed. But maybe as a point of departure, um, I, I'm going to speak a bit more about Iranian perceptions and then the impacts this will have on Iran and the region from that perspective. And, and what I'd say is that um, largely, you know, as Trita was saying, uh, the problem is that the failure of the maximum <coughs> pressure policy will not force Iran to change, right? And I'd say that this is not just a, an issue with the maximum pressure strategy being, you know, uh, problematic per se, but that the objective of the maximum pressure policy is problematic. And that's basically full capitulation. Iran has to fully surrender in the nuclear arena. Iran has to fully surrender in its ballistic missile program. And Iran has to fully surrender on its regional alliance network. Now, maybe if it wasn't a maximalist objective that the United States had, a maximum policy, uh, a maximum pressure policy could have uh, gotten to a type of agreement. Why? Because, you know, an agreement, all sides should compromise their positions. Uh, and that's what was 
good and strong about the JCPOA is that it really demonstrated that the United States and Iran could compromise on an issue, being the contours of Iran's nuclear program, to reach a settled agreement. And then that could provide a trust whereby both countries can move forward because it was really historic. You know, since 1979, the Islamic Revolution, um, an axis of evil countries sat down with the great Satan and they actually negotiated something that you know, had a positive impact. Now to suddenly pull out of that agreement, right? So what do you think the impact is to suddenly pull out of that agreement? The first thing that happens is that it undermines the reformist and moderate voices in Iran because President Rouhani, who was voted to office by the Iranian people, basically made three campaign promises. That I will show, unlike Ahmadinejad, that we can be reasonable and negotiate with the West and to remove international sanctions, okay? And I will show that we can um, basically remove the threat of war from Iran as Iran becomes a recognized power in the Middle East and I will give prestige <coughs> to the Iranian passport that Ahmadinejad has discredited the Iranian nation with his buffoonery, right? Now, everything that's happened since then, these three campaign promises, remove the threat of war, increase the prestige of the Iranian passport, remove sanctions, right? President Trump has been very effective in destroying. Now, I think one of the problems in the, the U.S. policymaking community, one of the wrong lessons learned, was that if we increase sanctions, we'll get more from the Iranians. So we got to the JCPOA because we put pressure on the Iranians, and look, they folded, they agreed to, an uh, to a nuclear agreement. So the problem with President Obama was that he could have pressured Iran more. If Obama just put more sanctions and more pressure, we would have, we would have gotten more from the Iranians. That's the logic. But the thinking here is incorrect because the fruit of American sanctions policy was President Rouhani. Those sanctions policy brought about that moderate shift in Iranian politics. So to increase sanctions only crushes the fruit of that sanctions policy. So what President Trump has been doing has been to undermine all the leverage that the United States had gained through the sanctions. And by increasing those sanctions, he no longer gains any leverage because one, the US has a quote unquote, a maximum pressure policy. So the US has already put maximum pressure on Iran. Where can it go to next? I mean, yes, it can go to targeted assassinations and that's what the US is now declaring that we'll kill our way to get to a nuclear deal. Um, but besides that, it shows that the US doesn't have that much leverage to put on Iran because already the US has put all its cards on the table. Now it's Iran's turn that it can now play its cards. And the thing is, because it's a maximalist objective for full capitulation on these different arenas, that Iran can never compromise. Why? Because we have to understand Iranian strategic thinking and Iranian defense policy. Iran has one of the weakest conventional militaries in the Middle East. It does not have a strong military. Most of the military equipment, a lot of it, are from the time of the Shah. There have been international sanctions on it, embargoes on weapon sales, right? So it has a very weak military and there's no, not much of a budget going to the military. So what is Iran's defense strategy? To um, a cheap and asymmetric military strategy to, to fund 
asymmetric proxy groups or not or arm movements across the Middle East, right? Because through that, it, it's able to get out of the isolation box to do a counter containment strategy to U.S. containment strategy of isolating Iran, right? So Iran's been able to create an effective alliance network across the region. That's called the axis of resistance. So in many ways, the story we're seeing of this increased conflict and uh, tension is that we're seeing the rise of an Iranian security architecture in the region, the axis of resistance, whilst we're seeing the erosion of, in many ways, a U.S. architecture in the Mid Middle East because of the erosion of uh, the effective capacity of American Arab allies to really secure, uh, secure their interests despite having bought you know, billions of dollars of, of Western military arms. So that's one component. And the second component, Iran's ballistic missiles, right? Um, that is Iran's main mechanisms of preventing any type of attack on Iran, right? The, the missile, Iran has one of the largest, it has the largest and most diverse uh, missile uh, uh, suppository in the Middle East. And that is in order to prevent any type of attack on Iran. Because if you attack on, do an attack on Iran, as we witness, those missiles will be used to do a counterattack. Iran can't, you know, use its uh, uh, aircraft, you know, uh, fleet. It doesn't have a strong air force. It can't roll the tanks down to Iraq and into Saudi Arabia. It doesn't have a strong, you know, conventional military. But it can shoot missiles. So now if the U.S. is doubling down on its efforts to not just use economic warfare, but to go into targeted assassinations, right, what do you think the impact will be in Tehran? So if you're sitting in Tehran, and let's say you're a reformist and moderate, okay, you're going to become hardliner, right, in terms of your security thinking. Either because, one, you're going to double down on those policies, because you think, you know, the U.S. is saying disarm, put down your weapons. If you put down the weapon, the U.S. will shoot. How do you know the U.S. won't shoot, right? The U.S. has already broken an agreement. So if you put down your weapon, the U.S. will shoot. You're not gonna put down your weapon. You're gonna make sure you have multiple guns aimed at U.S. interests so that the U.S. doesn't shoot, right? The second thing is that if you wanna reach America, let's say you wanna have ties with America, America has shown, or the lesson they're drawing from the bad experience of the JCPOA, or the lesson that's being shown by looking at the comparison of North Korea and Iran is, well, maybe if you were more powerful, maybe if you had nuclear weapons, the US behavior would be different. So if we want to get to the negotiating table with the United States, maybe we should be more powerful. Right, whereas before, under the Obama administration, this was a completely different logic, right? It was the hardliners, who are saying, you know, why should we give up? We should be stronger. We should, you know, have these capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the moderates and reformists saying, no, negotiation, dialogue is the way to get to the West. Now the thinking in Tehran is converging on we should be stronger, have more robust capabilities, and be more coercive. Now what, on top of this, coming into the current period now, what the Qasem Soleimani assassination has done is that it's really mobilized Iranian population behind the Islamic Republic. It's made reformists and conservatives more cohesive. And one discussion that has largely been lost sight of is it's unified the transnational Shia community. Ayatollah Sistani in Iraq, who in many ways doesn't agree with the Iranian clerical system, he 
uh, marked, uh, he said, Qasem Soleimani is now a martyr. And uh, um, in contemporary Shia societies, martyrdom is very different than in contemporary Sunni societies. It's like an elevated um, sainthood status. So Soleimani is a saint in many ways, right? Iraq, Iran, Hezbollah, Yemen, right? The, the, the funeral processions and, and the mobilization that will happen will create those who are willing to fight and die for the Islamic revolution of acts of resistance. So if, if a US strategy, you know, one would think would be to divide uh, or co-opt or somehow weaken Iran's, you know, regional networks or regional alliance systems or regional popularity, the assassination has done just the opposite. Uh, and it will strengthen the hardliners in particular in Iran. And the only thing one can ask is, you know, what is the U.S. end game? What will the U.S. gain from Iran? Let's say Iran comes to the negotiating table. What is it willing to give that it didn't give under Obama? Anything that you know we say, it'll be almost identical to the Obama agreement because Iran will not give more than that. So all this escalation and risk of conflict and empowerment of Iran and empowerment of the acts of resistance and empowerment of Shia is for no U.S. gain. Thank you. Great. Thank you.